When the cholera first broke out in France, a worthy prefect in a district of the South published an edict to the people, recommending them by all means to eat well-cooked and nutritious food, and drink nothing but vin de Bordeaux, en lice, claret. The advice was excellent, and I take it upon me to say, would have found very few opponents in fact, as it certainly did in principle. When the world, however, began to consider that, filets de boeuf a la Marengo, and, dins truffies, washed down with, chateau lafitte, or, la rose, were not exactly within the reach of every class of the community, they deemed the prefect's counsel more humane than practicable, and as they do at everything in France when the tide of public opinion changes, they laughed at him heartily, and wrote pasquinades upon his folly. At the same time the ridicule was unjust, the advice was good, sound, and based on true principles, the only mistake was, the difficulty of its practice. Had he recommended as an antiseptic to disease, that the people should play short whist, wear red nightcaps, or pelt stones at each other, there might have been good ground for the disfavor he fell into, such acts, however practicable and easy of execution, having manifestly no tendency to avert the cholera. Now this is precisely the state of matters in Ireland at this moment, distress prevails more or less in every province and in every county. The people want employment, and they want food. Had you recommended them to eat strawberries and cream in the morning, to drink lemonade during the day, take a little chicken salad for dinner, with a light bread pudding and a glass of negus afterwards, avoiding all stimulant and exciting food for your Irishman is a feverish subject you might be laughed at perhaps for your dietary, but certes it would bear, and bear strongly too, upon the case in question. But what do you do in reality? The local papers teem with cases of distress, families are starving, the poor, unhoused and unfed, are seen upon the roadsides exposed to every vicissitude of the season, surrounded by children who cry in vain for bread. What, I ask, is the measure of relief you propose? Not a public subscription, no general outburst of national charity, no public work upon a grand scale to give employment to the idle, food to the hungry, health to the sick, and hope to all. None of these. Your panacea is the repeal of the union, you purpose to substitute for those amiable jobbers in College Green, who call themselves directors of the Bank of Ireland, another set of jobbers infinitely more pernicious, and really dishonest, who will call themselves directors of Ireland itself, you talk of the advantage to the country, and particularly of the immense benefits that must accrue to the capital. Let us examine them a little. Dublin, you say, will be a flourishing city, inhabited by lords and ladies, wealth, rank, and influence will dwell in its houses and parade its streets. The glare of lamps, the crash of carriages, all the pride, pomp, and circumstances of fashion, will flow back upon the long-deserted land, and Paris and London will find a rival to compete with them, in this small city of the West. Would that this were so, would that it could be. This, however, is the extent of what you promise yourselves, you may ring the changes as you please, but the refrain of your song is, that Dublin shall have its own again. Well, for argument's sake, I say, be it so. The now silenced squares shall wake to the echoes of thundering equipages, 
peers and prelates shall again inhabit the dwellings long since the residence of hotel keepers, or still worse, those little democracies of social life, called boarding houses. Your theater shall be crowded, your shops frequented, and every advantage of wealth diffused through all the channels of society shall be yours. As far as Dublin is concerned, I say for, mark me, I keep you to this original point, in the land of your promise you have strictly limited the diffusion of your blessings by the boundary of the circular road, even the people at Ring's End and Ballybaugh Bridge are not to be included, unless a special bill be brought in for their benefit. Still the picture is a brilliant one, it would be a fine thing to see all the pomp and ceremony of proud popery walk the land at noonday, with its saints in gold and its relics in silver, for of course this is included in the plan. Prosperous Ireland must be Catholic Ireland, and even Spain and Belgium will hide their diminished heads when compared with the gorgeous homage rendered to popery at home. The gentlemen of Liffey Street Chapel, far better-looking fellows than any foreign priest you'll meet with from Trollhattan to Tivoli, will walk about, in pontificalibus, and all the exciting enthusiasm that Romanism so artfully diffuses through every feature of life, will introduce itself among a people who have all the warm temper and hot blood of the South, with the stern determination and headlong impulse of the North of Europe. By all of which I mean to say, that in points of strong popery, Dublin will beat the world, and that before a year of such prosperity be passed, she will have the finest altars, the fattest priests, and the longest catalogue of miracles in Europe. Lord Shrewsbury need not then go to the Tyrol for an estatica, he'll find one nearer home worth twice the money. The shin bone of St. Januarius, that jumped out of a wooden box in a hackney coach, because a gentleman swore, will be nothing to the scenes we'll witness, and if St. Patrick should sport his tibia at an evening party of Daniel O'Connell's, it would not in the least surprise me. These are great blessings, and I am fully sensible of them. Now let me pass on to another, which perhaps I have kept last as it is the chief of all, or as the late Lord Castlereagh would have said, the fundamental feature upon which my argument hinges. A very common topic of Irish eloquence is, to lament over the enormous exportation of cattle, fowl, and fish, that continually goes forward from Ireland into England. I acknowledge the justness of the complaint I see its force, and appreciate its value. It is exactly as though a grocer should exclaim against his misery, in being compelled to part with his high-flavored bohe, his sparkling lump sugar, and his Smyrna figs, or our publisher his books, for the base lucre of gain. It is humiliating, I confess, and I can well see how a warm-hearted and intelligent creature, who feels the hardship of an export trade in matters of food, must suffer when the principle is extended to a matter of genius, for, not content with our mutton from Meath, our salmon from Limerick, and our chickens from Carlo, but the Saxon must even be gratified with the soul-stirring eloquence of the great liberator himself, with only the trouble of going near St. Stephen's to hear him. I say near for among the other tyrannies of the land, he is compelled to shout loud enough to be heard in all the adjacent streets. Now this is too bad. Take our prog take even our poteen, if you will, but leave us our penates, this theft, which embodies the antithesis of Shakespeare, is not only trash, but not enriches them, and makes us poor indeed. 
Repeal the union, and you remedy this. You'll have him at home with you not masquerading about in the disguise of a gentleman not restricted by the habits of cultivated and civilized life not tamed down into the semblance and mockery of good conduct no longer the chained-up animal of the menagerie, but the roaring, rampant lion, roaming at large in his native forest not performing antics before some political Van Amberg not opening his huge jaws, as though he would devour the wigs, and shutting them again at the command of his keeper but howling in all the freedom of his passion, and lashing his brawny sides with his vigorous tail. Haydn, the composer, had an enormous appetite, to gratify which, when dining at a tavern, he ordered a dinner for three. The waiter delayed in serving, as he said the company hadn't yet arrived, but Haydn told him to bring it up at once, remarking, as he patted complacently his paunch, I am de company myself. Such will you have the case in your domestic parliament Dan will be the company himself. No longer fighting in the ranks of opposition, or among the supporters of a government no more the mere character of a peace, he will then be the Jack Johnson of the political world, taking the money at the door in which he has had some practice already he will speak the prologue, lead the orchestra, prompt the performers, and announce a repetition of the farce every night of the week for his own benefit. Only think what he is in England with his forty thieves at his back, and imagine what he will be in Ireland without one honest man to oppose him. He will indeed then be well worth seeing, and if Ireland had no other attraction, foreigners might visit us for a look at the Liberator. He is a droll fellow, is Dan, and there is a strong dash of native humor in his notion of repeal. What strange scenes, to be sure, it would conjure up. Only think for a moment of the absentee lord, an exiled peer, coming back to Dublin after an absence of half his lifetime, vainly endeavoring to seem pleased with his condition, and appear happy with his home. Like an insolvent debtor affecting to joke with the jailer, watch him simulating so much as he can of habits he has long forgotten, while his ignorance of his country is such that he cannot direct his coachman to a street in the capital. What a ludicrous view of life would this open to our view! While all these men, who have been satisfied hitherto to send their sympathies from Switzerland, and their best wishes for Ireland by an ambassador's bag, should now come back to writhe beneath the scourge of a demagogue, and the tyranny of a man who wields irresponsible power. All Ireland would present the features of a general election every one would be fascinating, courteous, affable, and dishonest. The unpopular debater in England might have his windows smashed. With us, it would be his neck would be broken. The excitement of the people will be felt within the Parliament, and then, fostered by all the rancor of party hate, will be returned to them with interest. The measure discussed out of doors by the Liberator will find no one hardy enough to oppose it within the House, and the opinions of the Corn Exchange will be the program for a committee. A notice of a motion will issue from Marion Square, and not from a seat in Parliament, and wherever he moves through the country, great Daniel, like a snail, will carry his house on his back. Rob me the exchequer, Hal, will be the cry of the priesthood, and no men are better deserving of their hire, and thus, wielding every implement of power, if Ireland be not happy, he can only have himself to blame for it. When the East India directors recalled Lord Ellenborough and replaced him by Sir Henry Harding, 
The impression upon the public mind was, as was natural it should be, that the course of policy adopted by the former was such as met not their approval and should not be persisted in by his successor. To supersede one man by another, that he might perform the very same acts in the same way, would be something too ludicrous and absurd. When John Bull chasses the Tories and takes to the Whigs, it is because he has had enough of Peel and wants to try a stage with Lord John, who handles the ribbons differently and drives another sort of a team. A piebald set of screws they are, to be sure, but they can go the pace when they are at it, and, as the road generally lies downhill, they get along right merrily. But John would never think of a change if the pace were to be always the same. No, he'd just put up with the set he had and take his chance. Not so your India directors. They are quite satisfied with everything. All is right, orderly, and proper, but still they would rather that another man were at the head of affairs to do exactly what had been done before. What are you doing, Peter? Nothing, sir. And you, Jim, what are you about? Helping Peter, sir. That is precisely the case, and Sir Henry is gone out to help Lord Ellenborough. Such a line of proceeding is doubtless singular enough, and many sensible people there are, who cannot comprehend the object and intention of the wise directors, while, by the press, severe imputations have been thrown upon their consistency and intelligence, and some have gone so far as to call their conduct unparalleled. This, however, is unjust. The old almanac, as Lord Brougham would call it, has registered a not inapplicable precedent, and, in the anxious hope of being remembered by the old lady, I hasten to mention it. When Louis Fourteenth grew tired of Madame Lavalliere and desired to replace her by another in his favor, he committed the difficult task of explanation on the subject to his faithful friend and confessor, Oswey. The worthy bishop undertook his delicate mission with diffidence, but he executed it with tact. The gentle Lavalier wept bitterly, she knew nothing of the misfortune that menaced her. She believed that her star still stood in the ascendant, and fancied, like Lord Ellenborough, that her blandishments were never more acknowledged. Whence, then, this change, cried she, in the agony of her grief. How have I offended him? You mistake me, my daughter, said Mons. De Meaux. His majesty is most tenderly attached to you, but religious scruples qualms of conscience have come upon him. Say par la père du diable, that he consents to this separation. Poor Louise dried her tears, the case was bad enough, but there was one consolation it was religion, and not a rival, had cost her a lover, and so she began her preparations for departure with a heart somewhat less heavy. On the day, however, of her leave-taking, a carriage, splashed and travel-stained, arrived at the petite port of the palace, and as instantaneously ran the rumor through the household that His Majesty's new mistress had arrived, and true it was, Madame de Maintenon had taken her place beside the foti of the king. So, Mons. De Bossuet, said Lavalliere, as he handed her to her carriage so, then, His Majesty has exiled me, par la père du diable. The bishop bowed in tacit submission and acquiescence. In that case, resumed she, say par complaisance au diable, that he accepts Madame de Maintenon.